seated. And now please turn forward in your Bibles to the book of Hosea and chapter 14. The book of the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 14, and reading verses 1 through 9, the entirety of the chapter. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Hosea 14 at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and His fragrance like Lebanon." They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. At the end of Hosea chapter 13, the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, and the house of Ephraim, that was the largest tribe and often symbolic of all of the northern kingdom, it fell under God's judgment in the Assyrian conquest. And now as we come to chapter 14 for the final time, as we come the very last time, Lord willing, to the book of Hosea in this series, as we come to chapter 14, Hosea the prophet returns to the theme of sinners' 
finding grace with an unfailing God. Even against the backdrop of judgments, we come to the theme of sinners finding grace with an unfailing God. And so, as we come to this passage this evening, we are going to focus in particular on verses 4 through 9 to complete the exposition, but we're going to use that summary of the whole chapter that we used last Lord's Day evening, where we see that this chapter maps out the pathway of a repentant faith, promising forgiveness and restoration for penitent sinners. This evening, we're going to consider four things. First of all, true repentance revisited. Secondly, saving grace. Thirdly, all-sufficient life. And then lastly, being wise. So, first of all then, and by way of review, true repentance revisited, verses 1 through 3. The people of the northern kingdom must have looked at the dreadful events of 722 B.C., the final fall of the capital Samaria, as the end for them. But from the long view of biblical history and the Lord's sovereign purposes, it was really a new beginning. As the smoke clears over the city of Samaria... The voice of the prophet is heard bearing a renewed appeal from God. Verse 1a, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Hosea follows this plea with instruction about how Israel should do that, how they should return to the Lord. Though the nation had been destroyed, the people could still be restored to God's grace. And so, God grants the very words that they are to petition Him with, verse 1b and 2. First of all, Hosea began with the why of salvation. Why is this necessary? Well, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity, verse 1b. teaches us repentance begins with conviction of sin. Secondly, Hosea noted the importance of prayer. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Verse 2a. Thirdly, such penitential prayer must appeal to the mercy of God. And as we set this text in the text of all of Holy Scripture, in the full light of the revelation of New Testament as well as Old Testament, then of course that penitential prayer must appeal to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ the Lord. And then fourthly, faith is to be expressed in the sincere surrender of ourselves, in obedient gratitude and thankfulness, verse 2b. Hosea then concluded this first section with a resolve to renounce trust in worldly power that is necessary if repentance be true and complete, verse 3a, and then concludes with the assurance 
Will God accept such penitent sinners? He grants assurance that God will indeed receive sinners who are truly penitent. Verse 3b, the orphan will find mercy in the Lord. Well, then that brings us to the main focus of our exposition this evening in the second main point, which is saving grace, verses 4 through 7, saving grace. The message of Hosea reminds us that there is always mercy in Jesus Christ for those who truly repent. So far, Hosea has depicted repentance, repentance from the side of the penitent sinner. That's what we were looking at in verses 1 through 3. But now as we come to verses 4 through 7, we see the Lord's part in this relationship between a merciful God and a penitent sinner. Here God speaks with words of love, words of hope. For the Lord promises to the penitent sinner, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Verse 4. Now, when the Lord speaks of healing their apostasy, He refers to all of that waywardness that we have dwelt upon from time to time in the series. Waywardness of thought, word, and deed among His people that for so long turned them away from the Lord. Notice here that whilst God does not deny our guilt and culpability, though, in these acts of betrayal, in this waywardness, notice how He regards them as part of our corrupt fallen nature that needs to be healed. Talk about that in theological terms as the process of sanctification, the inner renewal of the believer in holiness, the very thing that God promised to give to those that He would draw to Himself, penitent sinners, granted faith and the gift of faith to trust in the Lord. What had God promised to such? Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart, God says, and a new spirit I will put within you. No longer that spirit of rebellion and waywardness, but a spirit of obedience, faithfulness, out of gratitude and thankfulness, then we obey the Lord, follow Him. We are conformed progressively to the image of our Savior Himself, Jesus Christ. Christian, if you have confessed your sins this evening, truly in your heart, if you are truly penitent, if you turn to the Lord for mercy, then God has given you such a new heart, such a new disposition, such a new spirit. He has granted that healing of your sinful corruption. Yes, it is a progressive work, not yet fully completed and will not be until the final day in which we dwell on this earth, as we thought through our catechism question this morning in All Age Sunday School. But nevertheless, God is good for His Word here. This is reality. 
We have already entered into it, and it will be completed by the word of the Lord. The Lord then goes on to declare, I will love them freely. Again, verse 4. Now, back in chapter 3, which may seem a long time ago in our series and the book of Hosea, but back in chapter 3, you will recall, Hosea spoke for the Lord after purchasing his adulterous wife, Gomer, from the slave block. Hosea 3, verse 3, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Remember the great dramatic picture here that we saw of the purchasing back of one who had gone so waywardly, had been so unfaithful that they'd ended up enslaved and on a slave block, being sold. And yet, Hosea here, as the great picture of the Lord Himself, had gone to purchase his wife back from such a situation. Well, through that great drama, and drama it was, wasn't it? The Lord pointed to His faithful love for His people. He is the husband whose devotion, as it were, to use our modern-day language, never burns out. The one who is always ready to restore the fullness of His love to that wayward bride when she returns, penitent returning. And even when it was He who had to pay the price in order that she could return. These are wonderful words. I trust they thrill your heart this evening. Christian, though we are wayward in our natural state of rebellion, He does not love us reluctantly. He does not love us reservedly. He does not love us resentfully. Do I have to? He promises, I will love you freely. Wonderful words from the Lord to His people. God's third promise flows from the removal of sin and the restoration of love. Again, at the end of verse 4, for my anger has turned from them. This promise, of course, points to that theological idea which we call propitiation, the turning aside of the wrath of God from the sinner. The propitiation of Jesus Christ, that great action of the Savior upon the cross that turns aside the wrath of God away from the sinner by bearing it Himself as sin-bearer, as substitute. So, we've been thinking in our morning expositions in the book of Hebrews from time to time, focusing on that blood that was shed, that sacrifice that was made when Jesus, as both high priest and sacrifice, offered Himself offered His own precious blood that cleanses the believer from all his sin. God's holiness 
God's righteousness, His righteous demands of His holy law is satisfied. His anger is turned aside for all those who are in Christ. As with our friends down in Country House, as I am most Sunday afternoons, and we sang that wonderful hymn again, What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What does the blood of Jesus do for sinners? My anger is turned from them, God says, by that precious blood shed by the Savior on the cross. Now, having spoken of the full restoration of His love, the Lord speaks then in verses 5 through 7 of His restoration of blessings for His people. Here again, we have poetic language, beautiful poetic language, using all sorts of pictures, and in particular, metaphors of agricultural bounty. Hosea declares how God will prosper His people once again using those pictures. First, the Lord begins with, I will be like the dew to Israel, verse 5. Now, what had the spiritual state of Israel been? What had it become because of their waywardness? They became like a hard and barren land, didn't they? A little like uh, the desert is after the beating heat of summer all those weeks and months. That's what they were. And so, what's the first need for such barren, hard, arid soil if it's going to be bountiful again? Well, of course, it's for water, isn't it? It's for water. And the Lord promises to provide this blessing Himself. I will be like the dew to Israel. Again, without spending too much time and going into the details, this is particular to um, the climate and to the geographical location, that even when there are not significant rains, the dew in Canaan, in Palestine, and around that region often waters the arid ground. And so, the, the Lord takes up this picture, that which was common in that place, uh, not a thunderstorm, uh, not regular rain, but that which was common, the dew. That's the picture He uses here. And so, in the dry summer months in Israel, it's the morning dew that brings such refreshment, that offers that life-giving moisture to the ground so that their plants will grow, their crops will uh, progress. That's the picture here. So, also then, that if the penitent will walk with the Lord in faith and obedience, the Lord will be as that watering dew upon the soul to restore spiritual fruitfulness. Christian, there will be growth in faith, growth in love for the Savior, especially as we think of that life-giving water of God and God's given words. How Jesus spoke of that of Himself as the living Word of God, that He indeed was that water, that life-giving water that had come down from heaven. 
What a great difference is made in the life of the sinner who repents then. Look at the picture here. We're restored not only to God, but also to the spiritual bounty of life. Verse 5 begins with the restored beauty of the believer. He shall blossom like the lily. How pretty lilies are, aren't they? One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, How beautiful young Israel had once been, but sin had taken away her bloom. Commentator goes on to say, Sin likewise makes us ugly. And none can change that ugliness but God. He then goes on to ask in his commentary, Has sin made you ugly? Very pointed. Doesn't pull his punches here. Has sin made you, has sin made me ugly, he asks. Then he gets really down to it. Ugly in countenance, he says. Ugly in temperaments. What's the answer to that? He says, quote, Repent of your sin and turn to God. He can bring a beauty to your life that you thought could not be restored. End quote. That's the picture here of restored fruitfulness, but particularly here the beauty, the blooming, the blossoming of the believer. But not only that, the Lord also gives renewed strength. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, verse 5. Deep roots, of course, signify the ability to stand tall and endure in all seasons. It was only a week or so ago we had a very graphic illustration of that in our neighbor's yard. Very tall tree. Uh, The wind had been blowing, you may remember, a week or so ago in a storm. And there was a very loud crash one Saturday evening. The roots did not hold, and that tree came down. And perhaps you've had uh, the opportunity or experience of witnessing that in your own yard or someone else's yard. That's the picture. But whether it deep roots, the wind can blow, the storm can come, but the tree stands, doesn't it? Here, using the picture of those great trees of Lebanon. Perhaps if we were thinking of in our particular part of the world and in our context here, uh, we'd think of some of the great trees, some of the great redwoods, some of the great giant sequoias of California, where there are deep roots, then they do not fall. The Lord gives renewed strength. And then God restores value to the lives of those who return to Him in repentance, verse 6. Here a slightly different picture, the picture of olive trees. These produce fruit for eating and oil that was useful for medicine and lighting lamps in the ancient world. And so using that metaphor, that picture, men and women, boys and girls who turn anew to God will regain their great significance and purpose of their life as they were created as image bearers of God. The picture here in particular is showing them as being instruments of healing to the broken and lost around them and to their witness that shines the great light of God's salvation to all those who are sitting in darkness. Again, let me quote again from the commentator who made some, ha- some helpful 
applications from this chapter. He says, quote, Has sin made you feel worthless in your own eyes and in the eyes of others? Repent of sin and turn to God. He can teach you to bring forth fruit that will last forever, end quote. Jose then adds in verse 6, and his fragrance like Lebanon. This refers to that delightful uh, sense of smell and fragrance of bounty. The fragrance of restored fruitfulness in a renewed believer's life. Now, we all may have different preferences in fragrance. Uh, some of us might have some measure of intolerance to it and all of those circumstances. Um, but setting some of those particulars aside, uh, you get the picture here that it is used of something that is generally pleasant. And it spreads pleasure around, doesn't it? Uh, to those who breathe it in. So if you don't have a particular allergy or anything of that nature, if you do enter a room where there is particularly fragrant flowers... It doesn't just stay in one place, does it? It spreads so that everybody gets to enjoy it through your home or through a building uh, when there's a wedding with lots of flowers and those kinds of ideas. Here the idea is of a house filled with the fragrance of the perfume of such things. Uh, of course, again, we have a picture in the Gospels of that. As Remember the woman broke the alabaster a jar of precious ointment to anoint the Savior for His death. And John very practically notes, John 12, verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. That's the picture here. And so Paul takes up that idea, doesn't he, in the New Testament, when we walk as believers in close fellowship and obedience to the Lord, the fragrance of His presence with us is spread to those all around, he tells the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. Well, then this section, uh, verses 4 through 7, concludes uh, as the prophet takes up all of these pictures, all of these different ways of speaking of bounty and fruitfulness to speak of the spiritual abundance that God provides to the believer who turns in penitence. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the line of Lebanon, quoting the text. And then he goes on to say, Do you fear that you will miss out on the bounty of this life if you turn from sin and turn to the Lord? He says, If you fear such things, he says, quote, then think of fields of waving grain, vineyards bursting with grapes. The images here, he says, are of goodness, plenty, and abounding joy, end quote. That's wonderful, isn't it? Now, that's not to say that Christians don't have to face trials and difficulties in this world. 
It's not to say, as we would often use that term, that life will simply be that bed of roses with the fragrance all of the time as your permanent and exclusive experience of the Christian life. The Lord does not promise that. It doesn't mean that we are preserved from hardships, trials, difficulties, what we often call those hard realities of life in a fallen world, the veil of tears. But nevertheless, when we return to the Lord in true repentance, when we dwell beneath the shadow of God's love here as its picture, there may be hard winds, but they will not chill our hearts. The prosperity of our souls is preserved even in all of the seasons that may come yet until we arrive at glory. Well, that brings us in the third place to all-sufficient life, verse 8, all-sufficient life. Hosea's images of blessing and strength and delight remind us, I hope this has already come to your mind, of Eden, the garden that God planted in Eden in the beginning. That place where He placed the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, where they enjoyed bliss before in their waywardness they turned from God to sin. When Adam sinned, the way to the tree of life was barred. He was prevented from taking of the fruit of the tree of life. He was prevented by the sword of God's justice, you remember, in the cherubim that was stationed to prevent him taking it, as we read in the book of Genesis. Then the man and the woman were ejected, cast out of the garden, thrust out into a fallen world, a hostile world, to live under God's curse, as often that uh, very fruitful, very graphic phrase, even taken up in our um, contemporary literature, they had to live east of Eden difficult, sin-cursed world. How wonderful then it is to see that the prophecy of Hosea reaches its end with God revealing Himself as the evergreen tree of life here. Verse 8, I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Verse 8, you see how it takes up the echoes of the tree of life from Eden. Sin had spoiled God's people, but God remains the eternal God true to His great purpose from all of eternity. He is the evergreen cypress. From me, He says, comes your fruit. He is the one, to use that imagery, who has the unfading leaves of the tree of life. Now, that the Lord should present Himself to a people who had so greatly sinned as they had, as all sinners had, as though their fall here had never taken place, He has healed them entirely. He has forgiven them entirely. He will love them freely. He will now make them bountiful that the Lord should 
present Himself to such a sinful people and to treat them as such demonstrates, of course, again, that great theological topic of the Scriptures, that great subject which we call justification, the justification of the guilty sinner through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Though His people Israel, as a people, corporately, at this time were being led off in chains to distant exile by the Assyrians, never to return again as a geopolitical group, God remained committed to His great eternal purpose to save individuals. And that's how Paul takes it up, as we've noted again and again from the book of Romans. How does God fulfill this? He fulfills this by saving Gentiles who had been scattered, who had lost their ethnic identity as one of the ten tribes, but whom God in His faithfulness would yet still save. God is the holy, eternal God. He must do this so He can be both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. That's why we read here, verse 8, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? God will not just be one God amongst many. God amongst the false gods of the vain imaginations of men. God is the holy God. So the presence of the one true living God in blessing requires certainly the turning from sin, the renunciation of sin. But what sin can never provide, God here promises again to all those who will repent and believe. It is I, he says, who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, the Lord declares. From me comes your fruit. And so just as the way of salvation for Hosea's adulterous wife, Gomer, led in paths that brought her back to her husband eventually, so also for God's sinful people. The way back to blessing, the way back to life, is found at the cross of Jesus Christ by God paying the redemption price, God making the way open, and God leading His people into the faithful arms of Himself as their true husband. Well, then that leaves us in the fourth place to being wise, verse 9, being wise. The book of Hosea here concludes with three um, exhortations, we might call them. It's really a postscript. It addresses not merely Israel of old, but also each one of us here this evening, as we have read the book, as we have heard it expounded. It's as relevant to us today as it was when it was first given. These final lines here address the vital question to us this evening. Have we profited from the message of this book? 
Now, you might answer that question, well, of course, I must have done because it is part of God's breathed out word. All Scripture is profitable, right? So, if it's part of the Scriptures, then I guess I must have benefited. So, you might be thinking, I'm not quite sure how I have. And you may be still thinking about really what benefit is there in preaching through the book of Hosea in the 21st century in, in California. Well, the very last part of the book here, the very last verse of the book, helps us to think about that. Hosea here gives very um, appropriate counsel. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Verse 9. Have we seen through the calamity of ancient Israel how foolish it is to worship the idols of this world? Particulars vary and differ. The idols of their world are not the idols of our world necessarily. So let me make it very specific. Have we seen through the calamity of ancient Israel this example here, how foolish it is to worship the idols of our world today? That's what Hosea is asking you at the end of this chapter. Do we remember not to forget the Lord like they did? We don't focus upon the book in that way, in that particular way of saying, let me apply this to my heart, to my life. We think it's just something distant historically, a long time ago, very interesting. We're detached from it. We're not being wise. We're not interested in that way in the book of Hosea. If we're not, even as one commentator says, if we're not absorbed by these things, the likelihood is that we will stumble in the same transgressions as Israel did. But if we gain wisdom, if we are wise from learning, seeing, what happened here due to the folly and waywardness of Israel. We gain wisdom from the experience of our ancient spiritual forebears, understanding the Lord's ways and discerning the calling of our own times. What does the prophet tell us as much as he told them? The upright will walk in them bringing this into the full light of New Testament language, shining what we often call that Christocentric light upon this Old Testament book. We find that Jesus spoke in very similar terms as He preached to the people in what we often call the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke of two different men, each building a house, the foolish man built his house on the sand, and when the storm of the world and of God's judgment came, all his hopes came crashing down. But there was another man, one who listened to God's Word, built his house on the rock. What did Jesus say concerning that man? Matthew 7 verse 24, and the rain fell. 
The floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock, founded on Jesus Christ, the rock. So, let me ask you as we close this evening, where are you building? Have you, like these ancient Israelites, been foolishly building on the sinking sand of this world, of its worldliness and sin? Is that where you're busy day by day, hour by hour, building your life? Then let Hosea's final message here offer you true wisdom. There is a way back to God, even for such foolish sinners like that, that each one of us is by nature. There is a way back to God whose merciful blessing is that evergreen olive tree that has those leaves of healing. I am your blessing, the Lord says but it's only in repentance and faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter spoke to sinners like that, sinners like you and me. He proclaimed the great work of Christ, in particular the great work of Christ upon the cross, the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sin. And he made appeal even as Hosea makes appeal here. Peter appealed, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 3 verse 19 and 20. That's the great message of the book of Hosea. Return. Bring these words that God assures He will receive. If you will come in such way, He guarantees the orphan will find mercy. Even in our folly, even as the Israelites were foolish in all of their waywardness, yet God still was merciful in the day of His salvation, as He still is today. You heard the message this morning, you hear it again. Repent and believe, and come to know the blessings of God and His forgiveness of your sins, in the great gift of eternal life, in the great restoration of fruitfulness and abundance of life, begun here, even in a veil of tears, and that which will end in its full and consummate form, even in glory hereafter. Repent and turn to the Lord, even whilst we may. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the book of Hosea. We thank You for this message of grace, even against the backdrop of Your judgment. We thank You for Your tender appeal. Return to the Lord your God. We thank You for those words that You give us in order to do that very thing. 
Grant us that true repentance, that conviction of our sin that we cannot save ourselves. Grant each one here this evening to say no more our God to the work of our hands. Grant us to know of a certainty. Grant us to know experientially in you the orphan finds mercy. Here as we pray for Christ's sake.